as the executive director, you have to have a higher vision than that. And I'll tell you that Alex Katz from the Katz Foundation, he talked to me a lot about making sure that I was above the fray. He said, if there is a fire in a valley and you're in the middle of the fire and you have a fire hose, you have no idea which way to point the water to put the fire out. You might be going in the total wrong direction. But if you can get up above it, then you just put the water on the fire and it's going to go out fast. So I think about that a lot. So it's my role as a leader. I need to see the whole picture of the whole organization. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Marcy Finney, Executive Director at the Cleveland Cord Blood Center, or CCBC. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. Marcy, tell us about CCBC. So the Cleveland Cord Blood Center is what is called a public umbilical cord blood bank, where when a family's having a baby, the umbilical cord and the blood that's within inside it and the placenta is normally thrown away as biological waste. And if they are so inclined, they can donate that blood to us where we bring it to our laboratory here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we qualify it and test it, and then we freeze it. And those cord blood units can be used to treat patients that have blood disorders like leukemia. So it's a really amazing altruistic program. One of our favorite cord blood transplant recipients calls it the ultimate recycling program. Trash to treasure, where things that are normally thrown away as biological waste can be utilized to treat patients that have blood disorders and potentially save their lives. Marcy, let's unpack this a little bit. So what is special about cord blood and why do we bank it? The initial reason that we started to bank cord blood is individuals need what's called a stem cell transplant, right? You can use a related person to do that or a bone marrow donor from an adult that's unrelated, but that has to match your genetics, just like if you were going to get a heart transplant. So it has to match what they call your human leukocyte antigen or HLA. It's your DNA fingerprint. Well, what they found out was that not everybody has a match. So umbilical cord blood was a way to get donations for this use that didn't impact the donor, right? This is normally thrown away. So there was a movement to start banking public cord blood that would be available to all donors that might need it. And think about it sort of like when you donate blood, right? It's altruistic. So the donation is intended to be used for someone else. It's just like if you donate blood today, you don't expect that that blood's going to be saved for you 
in perpetuity if you need it. You think it's going to be used today for someone that needs it today. And then if I need blood, someone tomorrow donating that blood would be there. So that's how the industry got started. And now there are several public cord blood banks around the world that store this cord blood for that purpose. And Marcy, that's the difference between a public cord blood bank and a private cord blood bank. Correct. So the other option you have, well, there's a couple of options if you're having a baby, right? The one that happens most of the time is it's thrown in the trash, which to me is suboptimal. There's so much potential in a cord blood unit that we hate to see them thrown in the trash. So you could donate to a public cord blood bank like the Cleveland Cord Blood Center. The other option you have is you can pay to have it banked just for you and your family at what's called a private cord blood bank or a family cord blood bank. And that is a different philosophy, right? I couldn't say good or bad about that because it just depends on where your family is at the time. If you have some family history, there is a cost associated with it, but there are particular people in the population that that's a reasonable cost for them. So I give the analogy, there are people that have purses that are cost as much as it does to privately bank your baby's cord blood. So if you have a purse that's pretty expensive, you probably could afford to bank your baby's cord blood. And the idea about that is that the technology with umbilical cord blood is pretty new. Our medical director, Mary Lachlan, did the first cord blood transplant in an adult in 1993, 30 years ago. Wow. Not very long ago. So I joke, which I shouldn't, that I hope to live to be 100. I'm halfway there. It's not unrealistic these days. Yeah. I would say babies born today are very likely to live to be 100. So we have no idea what the technology might be like in 100 years. So to think that if you paid to bank your baby's cord blood, that you would have a DNA sample for them, frozen, and we think that they'll be good for a long time. So far, it's been proven they'll be good for 30 years, but scientifically, I would say that I think they'll be good for longer than that. So Marcy, what you're saying is if I bank my cord blood, or someone else banks their cord blood, and it could be a match to mine. If in the future, there's new technology that can use that cord blood to treat a disease, that's when the cord blood banks really come into play. Because there are all these new therapies and treatments that are coming out of cord blood. So maybe tell us how cord blood is used to treat a disease. Sure. So the traditional use And what the industry was born on is for, they call hematopoietic reconstitution, which is a long name. And what that means is for patients, especially that have leukemia, the cancer is a liquid cancer. I'm not a clinician, but I'll do my best to describe it. So that means it's circulating through their body, right? The pre-treatment, preconditioning gets rid of the cancer and gets rid of all of the patient's immune system, right? And then when they get a stem cell transplant, that transplant comes from the donor, in our case, an umbilical cord blood, and it regrows the recipient's entire immune system. So I'm not a hematologist either, but here are the things that I think about that make it concrete for me. The recipient's blood type could change (gasps) if the donor's blood type was different. So they actually grow blood from that donor. So I think that's a really concrete thing that I think about. And then as their immune system grows, that recipient also has to repeat all of their vaccinations that they had when they were a child because they have a brand new immune system, just like a newborn baby. So MMR and all of polio, all of those things that you had to get when you were a child, those cord blood transplant recipients need to repeat those vaccinations in order to get their immune system back up to an adult. So they get a brand new immune system from this donor, which is really remarkable when you think about it. 
That's amazing. Marcy, we're going to talk about the things that CCBC is doing to thrive, and thriving you are. But first, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become executive director? Like most people, it was certainly not a direct path. I wanted to be a physical therapist when I was in high school. I did well in high school, but my dad had gone to college, but after the military. So, you know, I wasn't applying to Ivy League colleges for sure. So I ended up going to Slippery Rock University where I majored in chemistry. I loved it. It made sense to me. Mm. It just worked in my brain. And when I graduated, I decided I wasn't going to do physical therapy. And I got a job at Case Western Reserve University. I had wanted to go there. And so I thought the best way for me to actually get a degree there was to work there. And then I could take classes on the side, which I did. So I began doing research there. I started in research with cystic fibrosis. And I did analytical chemistry where we were using ibuprofen to treat cystic fibrosis patients. And we needed to check their absorption because they didn't absorb the ibuprofen as well as a healthy person. So I did lots of analytical chemistry, metabolic diseases. And I had a friend who was a drug rep. And what she sold was Nupagen, which is used in leukemia patients. And she came to me one day and said, Marcy, this woman has moved to Cleveland from Duke. Her name is Mary Lachlan. She is doing pioneering research in umbilical cord blood. You would love her. It would be so great for you to move into her lab. And I said, Maria, I am getting married. I'm trying to get my PhD. I'm coaching basketball. I can't change jobs right now. And I love my job. And she took me to lunch one day, which I thought was lunch with her, but it was with Mary Lachlan. Ah, she set you up. She did set me up. Dr. Lachlan was gracious and really wanted me to come and work in her lab. And I said, thank you very much, but I can't. I need a year. I'm getting married. I'm trying to finish my graduate degree. And she said, okay, I'll call you in a year. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. (laughs) But she did call me in a year. After a year, I was married. I had some life-changing things. My stepfather passed away unexpectedly Mm. at 52 from cancer. And I thought, you know, maybe I want to do something in cancer. My mom was grieving and my mom has been a huge supporter of my career. She always reminds me that I always said I wanted to, I didn't want to work for money. I wanted to work for some cause. And she reminds me when I forget that. Mm. So I went to work for her and we did basic science research on umbilical cord blood. And a few years later, she said, you know, there's no public cord blood bank in this area. So there was one in New York City, there was one in St. Louis, there was one in Duke, but there wasn't one in Cleveland. We should try to open a core blood bank. And she made a million connections, worked with the Abraham J. and Phyllis Katz Foundation, who has supported us still to this day to start a public core blood bank here in Cleveland, Ohio. So I went with her. My job at first was to start the collection sites. You know, it's a tough sell to go into the Cleveland Clinic and say, you know, we're a brand new public cord blood bank. We'd like to talk to your patients and see if they want to donate to us when we were building all of the infrastructure here. Right, right. So that was my job. We opened sites in Cleveland, Atlanta, and in the East Bay in San Francisco, Berkeley, and San Leandro. And then in 2016, our initial executive director stepped down and I was brought in from internally to take over as an executive director. So it was a crazy transition. Marcy, this was your first ED position. How do you go from being a researcher to executive director of a really important organization? Yeah, it was a really tough mental shift, right? If I would talk about the leadership, because I was very operational. 
as the executive director, you have to have a higher vision than that. Yes. And I'll tell you that Alex Katz from the Katz Foundation, he talked to me a lot about making sure that I was above the fray. He said, if there is a fire in a valley and you're in the middle of the fire and you have a fire hose, you have no idea which way to point the water to put the fire out. You might be going in the total wrong direction. But if you can get up above it, then you just put the water on the fire and it's going to go out fast. So I think about that a lot. So it's my role as a leader. I need to see the whole picture of the whole organization and everything's interconnected. So I think that's a lot of work. I also got a lot of help. I had an executive coach, Stacy Finer, who helped me tremendously in my journey. And then I also had the opportunity to participate in Case Western Reserve's Weatherhead Executive MBA, which a big part of that was also those leadership skills that I gained in that program. You've had quite the journey. So let's turn to CCBC. What makes you different from other public cord blood banks? You say that you're special. We had been in existence for about eight years. One of the things when I took over as executive director, if I asked people if we have the best cord blood units, people would raise their hand. They had a lot of confidence in the product itself. But if I had asked those people if this was a great place to work, I think the answer would have been different. Ah. So I think one of the things I've thought about is you have to do great work and it has to be a great place to work. So it has to be both things. You know, we have a staff of around 30 people across the country, you know, in Atlanta and San Francisco and here in Cleveland. And they are all highly skilled and completely dedicated to our mission. But I also feel as leadership and our board, right, that is our job to make sure that they continue to feel that they're doing good work and that this is a good place to work. So we had to put a lot of policies in place that we had didn't have as a startup, right? We needed job descriptions. And I think all of that infrastructure really matters to employees so they know what their expectations are. One of my favorite MBA professors said, if your horses are going the wrong way on the track, it doesn't matter how you motivate them. Ah. You can use a carrot or a stick, but if they're going the wrong direction, it doesn't really matter. So I think we did a lot of work of strategic planning and reevaluating our mission, vision, and values to make sure that we were all facing the right direction. And it's really important. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe in the first five years of the organization, you were really focused on building, focused on the customers, and focused on the science. And you're still focused on that. But now with you, you're also focused on the staff so that you're building a great organization. Correct. I hope so. Now, Marcy, we've talked about how you are one of only eight FDA-licensed cord blood centers in the U.S., what does that mean? A couple of things. I think even amongst those eight, Cleveland is different in the fact that we're completely standalone. So we're not part of a blood center. We're not part of a hospital. We're not part of an academic institution. So I think that separates us. But for those eight, you know, the FDA recognized that using umbilical cord blood in these treatments is much like a drug, right? So it's coming from one person and then it's coming to our lab, we are testing it and freezing it, and then it's going to a second person. So we are 
proud to submit to all of the regulations of the FDA. And I think that it has elevated the field. It's actually united the cord blood banks more than they ever have been. I'm also part of the cord blood association. And I think that has been a big role of that association in uniting the banks together. And Joanne Kurtzberg was the founder of that. And she really did a lot of work to unite both the public and private banks, and then also the public banks together. But it kind of became us against the FDA a little bit. And that actually united us, right? We all wanted to do a great job of complying with what the FDA wanted. And in order to do that, I think we all had to collaborate more than we had before. It probably sounds backwards, but having to get the FDA license was a uniting factor for all of the banks. And I think the Corporate Association also had a role in that too, and Joanne Kurtzberg. Marcy, what's the vision for the CCBC? You're collecting this cord blood, you're storing it. What do you do with it? It's a really great question. So, you know, we built the bank on the idea that we purposefully wanted to have collection sites across the country, Cleveland, Atlanta, California, right? So that we could have a breadth of donors. So when they use cord blood, oftentimes it matters what your ethnic background is, right? So if you're Caucasian, you're more likely to match another Caucasian and et cetera. And as our population gets more mixed, we wanted to have a snapshot of units across the country in our bank. So that was one thing. But we did recognize probably in 2018 that just growing the inventory was probably not going to be enough to sustain our organization in the long term. And we were using it just for that one reconstitution purpose. All of the units that we brought in were meeting the criteria for the FDA, so we weren't using them. We have 11,000 units frozen in our bank, but we're not using very many every year. So we thought of what are the things that we can do that can make that inventory more valuable, and we can use more of those units. People are well aware when they donate their cord blood to us, all the things that we might do. We talk about it at length in our consent forms and our collection coordinators do an amazing job. And we talk about research. They can decide if they want to do that or not. But most of the time, people wouldn't donate their baby's umbilical cord for us to not use it. Right. They want it to be used. So we started thinking about what can we do to partner with people so that we can make it available for them to do research with? So we have now partnered with, I think that we have material transfer agreements with over 50 different organizations. Those organizations range from academic research institutions to those that are working on more clinical applications. They're in the process. Maybe they're doing studies right now in in vivo models to actual developers that are working on commercializing and making treatments for patients. So we have partners all along that spectrum. And this year, the cord blood industry had a major milestone where Gamita sells a new product that is derived from cord blood, got FDA approval for use in transplantation. So their product makes the transplantation better we think, than a traditional transplant, but it is on the market now. And that is a huge accomplishment. And we are really happy that we could say that we have partnered with Gamita along the way and provided them with research units. And if one of our users is chosen for their product, we will use it for that too. So I think that we're seeing the industry also moving into new technologies, right? There are works with deriving immunotherapies from umbilical cord blood that might be able to treat autoimmune disorders. There is clinical trials on using umbilical cord blood for treatment of cerebral palsy and autism. There are also clinical trials thinking about if you 
use a particular umbilical cord blood for a patient with HIV and leukemia, you can find ones that will treat both of those things and actually cure their HIV. There have been a few patients that have been cured of their HIV with a cord blood unit. Wow. So I think that the possibilities are endless. And you could see that it's all along the spectrum of disorders too, right? So I feel like our role as a bank is to make sure that we continue to grow this inventory, that we have units from across the country. And the beauty of it is it also takes a nice snapshot of the population today. We see more mixing of population. So I think that matching will be more challenging in the future. So we're trying to do what we can to make sure that this inventory is available for developers as they think about new cord blood products. So Marcy, if I have a listener who's pregnant and says, wow, I'd be interested in donating my baby's cord blood, what do they do and where do they go? There are a couple of resources I would say. The NMDP, the National Marrow Donor Program, has a wonderful website that will list all of the places in your state that offer public cord blood donation. Unfortunately, it's challenging for banks. We can't collect everywhere. Right. We talked a little bit about the regulatory space that we're in, and we should be. So that is one good resource. I would also say that the Parents Guide to Cord Blood is a great resource for parents, and it also gives you the benefits of both public and private. Frances Verter runs that particular site. And she was challenged when she was having a child about what to do with her baby's cord blood. And so she developed this resource for parents. I would say those are two great resources. We'll put them in the show notes. Great. Marcy, you're doing all these new things. You're not just collecting and storing. You're now really much more involved in research, it sounds like. How are you funding all this? We get funding from a couple of sources. One, we get funding from some philanthropic donors, the Abraham J. and Phyllis Katz Foundation has funded us for our whole existence. Also, the Goodman family has funded us from their existence. We have a legacy gift from them, and they both have representatives on our board of directors, which is amazing for us. We get some philanthropic donations. We are always writing grants for support, both locally and nationally. We receive some funding from the government, the Department of Health Science Resource Administration, HRSA. The government has recognized that you know, building a cord blood inventory is a national resource. So they fund cord blood banks to add new cord blood units to the inventory, especially from diverse donors. So we get some support from them. We also get some support from the state of California. Mm. They recognize that the state of California was underrepresented on the registries. So they fund public cord blood banks to set up collection sites in their state. Those units can be kept in California or kept in Ohio like ours are, but they help us with the startup and ongoing costs of staffing a collection site. We also get some revenue from when a cord blood unit is used for a transplant. So we do get some reimbursement from that. And then we also, we do recover our collection costs if we are using cord blood units for research partners. So they do help us with recovering those costs. Tell us about some of the life-saving treatments that are now available because of cord blood. And tell us a couple stories. There's been a lot of work done on other uses for cord blood, but the majority of them are still folks that have leukemia. I'll tell you, we have a wonderful group of 
labor and delivery nurses that are hospital liaisons. And part of their job is to call people. We have a responsibility to call donors when a cord blood is going to be used and ask them a few follow-up questions. Have you or the baby been to the emergency room? Have you or the baby been diagnosed with any serious illnesses? You know, just to check on, you know, it could have been 10 years ago that they donated. And I still think this is the best part of people's job, right? When they call, those people start crying, usually. They're overwhelmed with joy that this is happening to something. Sometimes they even forget that they donated. We have a story like that with a local news anchor, Jamie Sullivan. Her mom is a labor and delivery nurse, has been with the Cleveland Clinic's OBGYN for, I think, 40 years. Helped us to get going. Jamie, of course, donated her two sons umbilical cord blood, and it got used for transplant. And Jamie is a huge advocate. And she just embodies the whole altruistic nature of it, right? So it's for the recipients, but the donors also feel it too. And I feel like they get such a great sense of accomplishment, I guess, of something that was going to be thrown away. So we have stories of people that donated to us. We have stories of the Miller family. Their daughter, Josephine, was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. There's no cell therapy treatment here in the United States. They're working on it now, but this was 10 years ago. They wanted to take her to Taiwan to get treatment. And they got in contact with us here in Cleveland, and we were able to provide a cord blood unit to them to send it to Taiwan, and they went to Taiwan and got her treatment for her cerebral palsy. I'm not a clinician. I can't tell you whether, but I'll tell you that her parents think that this treatment was really beneficial to her. When they went, she was prone. She couldn't move. She couldn't roll over. Now she's in middle school. She sits in her wheelchair. She can message on her iPad. She can't speak, but she can talk through her iPad. She can eat. And they feel like this really changed Josephine's path. She goes to school. Let me make sure I understand this. So the family went to Taiwan, but you found a match in your database or in your storage for the daughter that then that donation was sent to Taiwan and used in her treatment. Correct. Wow. And Marcy, when you say it's mostly used for leukemia patients, do these therapies actually treat the leukemia so that then I am disease-free? That's the intent. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's the intent. And, you know, we have several stories of wonderful people that we have met either through patients of our founder and medical director. You know, Diana is a cord blood transplant recipient. She was a school nurse and she started not feeling well. She's a Caucasian woman, but she could not find a donor on the registries. So she was given cord blood and she's the one that coined the phrase, the ultimate recycling program. Yeah. She's trash to treasure. And, you know, she went so far as picked out her husband's suit for her funeral. She was that sick. She did not think she was going to make it. And she has since gone on to see her grandchildren graduate college. And she always is a big part of Nurses Week because she was a nurse for us. So she often goes and talks to the nurses on the floor. There's another woman, Lauren, who literally works across the hall from me in an engineering firm. I met her in the bathroom one day and she said, hey, do you work at that cord blood place? And I said, yeah, hi, I'm Marcy. And she said, well, I'm Lauren. I had leukemia and I couldn't find a match and I had a cord blood transplant and it saved my life. Wow. She is a thriving young woman who does a lot of wonderful things apart from just her work in her engineering firm. So Marcy, it sounds like the takeaway for my listeners is to, whenever possible, donate your child's umbilical cord blood to a public blood bank. Absolutely. 
Marcy, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing for all the researchers and all the families and all the kids who are benefiting from the work that you're doing. And thank you for making CCBC a great place to work. I hope you'll come back and tell us about all this amazing new research that's coming down the pike. Great. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.